welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The word Hosanna means save us now. And we have a lot these days we might ask God to save us from. But, as always, he has a better plan. Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this Palm Sunday sermon entitled The Light Dawns in David's City, which covers Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, wherever you are, if you're sitting on your couch or your kitchen table, or maybe you're maybe you're just sitting in bed in your PJs, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up with me to Mark chapter 11. Uh, we're coming to what may be one of the most significant passages in the entire book. Uh, this moment in the story that the gospel has been building towards this entire time. And, and if you're anything like me, when I was a kid, uh, I used to love Palm Sunday, the Sunday that we have set apart in the church calendar to celebrate this moment in the life of Jesus. And I loved it for a reason that wasn't very holy. I liked it because as a kid, I got to take branches and at church, poke people with them. Now that might give you a window into my heart and it may tell you why this was significant to me, but this text... This, significant is, this text is significant for a much better reason. And it's this. At this moment, Jesus, the Jesus who all through the Gospels has been ministering in backwoods places to small people, who seemingly has been doing everything in the shadows, Jesus, Jesus is about to make himself known. And the light of the world is about to dawn on David's city, and he does so in a way that frankly is a little bit disorienting because as Jesus so often does, he comes in a way that we don't expect. My prayer is that as we see Jesus in all his disorienting glory, is we would see him for the mercy that he offers and the grace that so overflows from his heart. Let's read this text together, starting in verse one. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And the disciples went away, and they found a colt, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And the disciples told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, literally save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany, the 12. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, as people who are separated by time and space and location, And yet, Lord, we are confident of this, that while those things separate us, they don't separate us from you. And Lord, as we come into your word, 
this word that is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, Lord, we come to something that is never preached and preached faithfully in vain. Lord, that moves and works in the lives and the hearts of all your people. And so we pray, would you speak? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us today? And we pray you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you have ever been to a fun house, but when I was a little kid, my parents took me and my little brother and my little sister to one. uh, And it was an experience that I'll never forget. Uh, It wasn't one, I don't remember what the name of the place was. I, I don't remember how old we were. I don't even remember where this specific place was located. In fact, I don't know if it was a spontaneous thing our parents took us on or if this was something that they had planned for a long while. But I, I remember the experience. Because as soon as you walk into a funhouse, as soon as you go through that first door, the world around you slowly but surely becomes disoriented. You look into a mirror and you see the same face that you always see looking back at you But now, for some reason, it's shaped like a peanut. And your body looks like you swallowed something in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. And all sorts of strange things are happening. You go through another door, and there's a hill. But when you drop a ball on this hill, it doesn't roll down as it does outside those walls in the real world. The ball rolls up. When you go through another door, suddenly things that were really easy just a moment before, like walking in a straight line, suddenly walking from point A to point B becomes something that's absolutely impossible and the legs that have always supported you, they start to fail you. Everywhere you turn, things look on the surface like they're normal, but it's been tilted. It's been disoriented. It's been distorted in such a way that it's unsettling. And Jesus... Jesus is doing something similar here. Because on the surface, what is happening here in this text, it seems very straightforward. Jesus, he has come to his city. He's finally announcing himself as the king. He's not hiding anymore. He's not telling people not to speak of him anymore. He is receiving the praises of his people. And he is coming into Jerusalem like the conquering king that he is. People are throwing their cloaks down in front of him as a sign of submission to him as king. They're singing psalms of praise saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they are looking at Jesus on a week whose significance would not have been lost on them, the week of the Passover. This moment when God's people are celebrating, the moment when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And there is hanging in the air this expectation that the deliverance that they experience there, it's about to be eclipsed by a deliverance that is even greater because now the king has come. But underneath all the shouting, there is this little whisper, this subtle hum that by the time the gospel ends is going to grow into a roar that takes that world and just like the funhouse, it twists it. It disorients you because what is the thing What is the thing that every one of us who's been reading the Gospel of Mark knows is true? What's that thing that the disciples who are sitting here with Jesus know to be true? Even if they don't yet understand it, even if they're willfully ignoring it, what is it? It's that Jesus, the King who has finally come to his city, 
Jesus hasn't come to be crowned. Jesus has come to be condemned. And Jesus hasn't come to ascend a throne. Jesus has come to descend into a tomb. Because what did Jesus say? In the chapter just before our text today, he looked at his disciples and in verse 33, he says, here's the reason we're going to Jerusalem. It's simply this, so that I might die. We're going to Jerusalem so that I can give my life as a ransom for many, as he says in verse 45. It's not the king. It's not the king that Israel expects. It's not the king that we expect. But this is the king, this disorienting king. This is the king that we need. Because here is one who knows your points of greatest need, even if you don't know it yourself. And he meets you in the very midst of it. A king before whom there is only one response, and that is to cry with the crowd, Hosanna, save us now. Because who's the Jesus in Mark 11? Who is this king? First, he's a humble servant. You know, Jesus, as you read through the gospel of Mark, Jesus, he doesn't ever do things just off the cuff. Jesus is deliberate. Jesus takes care. And Jesus, every step he takes here in these first seven verses, they are steps that are taken with extreme care. There is something Jesus wants us to see. Because earlier in the gospel, when Jesus enters places, when he goes into Nazareth or Capernaum or when he crosses the sea, it just says he went into Capernaum. He left Nazareth. He said, let's cross the sea. And then it tells you nothing. There's no details. There's no sense that you need to know the precise method by which he arrived. You just need to know he's going in and he's going out. But not here. Jesus... Jesus takes great care that when he comes into the city of Jerusalem, he's not walking on foot and he's not riding on a random beast of burden. He is riding on something very specific. And Matt and Mark, he spends six, excuse me, seven verses. He spends seven verses showing you exactly what. I went to Georgia, guys, I'm sorry. Jesus, Jesus wants to enter the city in this way. He wants to enter on the back of a colt, a donkey. And he wants to do it in that way and in that way only. The question, the question we should be asking is why? Because you, this, this is not how a king enters his city. Uh, when Alexander the Great, having conquered most of the known world, when he came into Jerusalem in 332 BC, uh, he didn't come on a donkey. If you had told him that that was an option, Alexander the Great would have looked at everyone and said, that's ridiculous. I'm not coming in on a donkey. Alexander the Great, when he went into Jerusalem, he went in on the back of a war horse and the biggest and baddest war horse that he could find. Because Alexander the Great, he wanted to be seen in his glory. He wanted to be seen as the ruler standing amidst the ruled, as the conqueror standing amidst the conquered. But Jesus, Jesus chooses donkey. Why? And the answer is simply this. It's because of a promise. 
that God made to his people all the way back in Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, God has come to his people in a moment of despair. They've returned from exile to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple, but they are beginning to wonder if the glory of their nation, the glory of the temple, if it was ever going to be restored. And God comes to them in that moment, and he promises them this. One day, one day a king is going to come, and when he comes, he's going to bring rejoicing. He will be righteous in a way that no other king has ever been before him. And he will possess and he will hold in his hands salvation. But here's the key part, verse 9. He will come humbly, riding on the back of a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's an odd detail. You know, the rabbis, when they read this text, it, it embarrassed them. Because this is not the way you expect a king to come who's going to restore you to glory, is it? They looked around the other prophets and they saw this figure who was promised, this son of man, this king who was going to come and restore God's people. And when he came, he seemed to come in glory. He came on the clouds of heaven. And so they couldn't figure out how does this king reconcile with that one? And the answer that they came up with was this. If Israel was worthy... If Israel did the things that God asked them to do, if they followed him with all their heart, then the Son of Man, he would come in glory riding on the clouds of heaven. But if Israel wasn't worthy, if Israel didn't live up to God's expectations, then the king, he wouldn't come in glory. He would come in humility on the back of a donkey. It was judgment. They were embarrassed by this text. But notice this. Jesus isn't. Jesus, Jesus deliberately identifies himself with this king. And that's incredibly good news. Because the rabbis, they weren't all wrong, were they? Israel was unworthy. Israel was more unworthy than they even knew. Their hearts were more hostile to their God than they could have ever have imagined. And yet, the rabbis got something very, very wrong. This wasn't judgment. This, this was mercy. Because who is a better fit? Who is better fit to care for broken sinners? than a king who comes not in anger or in wrath, but humbly, gently, carrying salvation in his hands. Jesus, Jesus says that, that's the kind of king I am. You know, as kids, we've all had those moments where we've broken something that we knew was precious and experienced that terror that follows of wondering how we're going to confess how we're going to tell the person whose thing we broke that we've done this. And there's that terror because we're afraid that there's going to be a punishment, some kind of consequence. You know, I remember when I was 17, my parents finally letting me drive the car by myself for the first time. And I drove it actually here to Perimeter Church into our parking lot. And I promptly drove that car right into the back of a parked car because I'm awesome like that. 
And I remember sitting there in that car, just terrified, realizing I have to sit here and wait for whoever's car this is to come out because I have to tell them what I've done and I have no idea how they're going to react. You know, that, that terror, it only gets worse. It only gets worse if you know the person who's coming is proud. It only gets worse if you know that they are angry and that the way they're going to respond to what you have done, it's not with compassion or tenderness or care, but instead it's going to be with wrath. But if you know, if you know the person who's coming, the person before whom you are about to be exposed, if you know that they're humble, that their heart is tender, and that they are more ready to dispense compassion than they are ready to dispense discipline, then all that fear, all that fear melts away, doesn't it? Jesus, Jesus is saying with a physical act, that's the kind of king I am. I'm the humble one who has come to serve. And look, look how humbly he comes. Because this isn't an earthly king on the back of a donkey. This is the eternal son of God for whom even the greatest glories of an earthly king would have been a condescension. And yet Jesus chooses a donkey. And it's not even his. He borrows it. He doesn't come on a saddle He's not riding around on this glorious saddle fit for a king. He's riding on a makeshift saddle made of the cloaks of his disciples. That's it. And here is what is humbler still. That king, he is riding that donkey into a city, not to ascend a throne, but he's riding into that city to give his life on a cross. What fears, what fears can you have before so tender and so gracious and so humble a king? When we are afraid, Mark 11 says, look at Jesus. Look at the one who comes to his people and who comes in this way so that as Augustine said, we would see his pity. Look at the one who, as Martin Luther said to those who feared the approach of Jesus, look at the one who rides no stallion, which is a war animal, who comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby he shows that he does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them. Jesus, Jesus comes to help them to carry their burdens and take them on himself. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the humble servant who comes to people who are terrified to stand in the presence of a holy God. And Jesus, he comes near that you would know that in him there is one who will offer you mercy. He's the king who comes to die. But not just, not just so that you would see his love, not just so that you would see his mercy. He comes that through his death, 
you and I, we would actually be saved. Jesus, he's not just a humble servant. Jesus is the blessed Savior. The king of Zechariah 9, he's not just a humble one. He's the one who is righteous and who holds salvation in his hands. And the people in Mark 11, they seem to see it. Look at verse 8. It says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Again, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus comes in a way that no one would have expected, riding on the back of a donkey, and the people welcome him like a conquering king. But before we think that this is some kind of Mary Poppins musical moment, where the city of Jerusalem is just going about their business and then all of a sudden the chimney sweeps start pouring out and everyone's doing their choreographed dance and singing. Uh, we need to be really clear, that is not what's happening here. The psalm they are singing, Psalm 118, uh, that's a psalm they would have been singing even if Jesus hadn't shown up. Because that's a psalm that every pilgrim on the week of Passover would have been singing as they entered into the gates of the city and prepared to worship in the temple. It's a song that even as we just did the confession of sin where Jeff read the first part and then we read the second where we called and responded, it would have been one where the pilgrims would have said part and then the city would have responded and they would have carried on in this way until they came into the temple itself. This, them singing this psalm, it's not strange. They're singing a psalm of a day when God's king would return to his city having conquered all of their enemies and he would lead God's people into the temple to worship where he would be welcomed by the praise of the priests. And at this time, this is a psalm that's taken on messianic overtones. Because when they sing this psalm, the people of Jerusalem and the people of Israel, they are singing it as those who are crying for the Messiah to come the king who would finally deliver them, who on this Passover, celebrating God's deliverance of his people from their foreign oppressor, when that king, he would come and he would deliver them again. This time from Rome. That they're singing this song is not strange. But here's, here's what's strange. They're directing the psalm at Jesus and they are throwing their cloaks at his feet as a sign of submission to the king who has come. And what used to be, what used to be a cry of hope for something that still felt a long way off, it has become a cry of immediacy where they are looking at Jesus and saying, save us now. And the hope in their hearts it's that the king who was promised is the king who has come and he is finally going to deliver them from Rome in full. And then the funhouse mirror returns. Because Jesus, that's not why he's come to this city at all, is it? The people, 
as is going to become painfully clear in the chapters that follow, the people are looking at the right king. They're looking at the right savior. But they're looking for the wrong kind of salvation. They want Jesus to restore Israel to national prominence. They want him to take Rome and to conquer them and destroy them completely. They want to see him restore Israel to all of their glory. And Jesus, at least at this moment, he has come to do absolutely none of those things. Because who is Jesus already told us that he is? He's not the king who's come to conquer. He's the king who's come to die. And while he's come to save, it's not from Rome. It's from something much deeper and something much darker. The shadow of which begins to show itself when we turn to verse 11. Jesus, he goes into the city and walks towards the temple, the place where according to Psalm 118, the psalm that they're all singing, the priests should be ready to welcome him with open arms. And yet look what happens. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem And he went into the temple. And when Jesus had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Did you notice it? The crowd, the crowd fades away. And Jesus, at least for a moment, Jesus seems to stand alone. And while there's been shouting in the streets, there's silence in the temple. God in human flesh has just walked into the temple where his name is being lifted up and not a single person rises to greet him. Just silence. And Jesus, Jesus just gets up and leaves. He looks around He surveys the scene and he leaves the temple. And he doesn't just leave the temple. Notice this, he leaves Jerusalem. The king has come and yet he does not have a place to stay in his own city. And when Jesus comes back, he comes back as a man on the warpath, but not against the thing that Israel would expect. Jesus, on his way back to Jerusalem, He doesn't judge Rome. He judges Israel. He sees a fig tree that is seeming to sow the signs of fruit and yet doesn't have the reality. And Jesus curses it and says, bear fruit no more. He goes into the temple, the place where the night before he was greeted by no one and met only with silence, the place that he had looked around and surveyed. And this time Jesus, not in a fit of rage, but in a premeditated act, driven by zeal for his father's house, Jesus, he starts flipping over tables because something is rotten at the heart of Israel's worship and Jesus is showing himself to be the one who has come to purify it in full. Jesus turns to the religious leaders and he compares them to tenants. He compares them to tenants who have been given stewardship of a vineyard where the master expects them to give them the fruit that he is owed. And yet whenever the master sends his servants to collect the fruit, these tenants, they beat his servants, they kill his servants, until finally the owner of the vineyard 
he sends his most precious gift of all, his beloved son, thinking surely, surely they will respect my son. And the tenants, the tenants kill him too. And Jesus, Jesus looks at the religious leaders and Jesus says, have you not heard? Have you not heard? And he quotes from Psalm 118, the part that the crowd seems to have forgotten. The stone the builders rejected. The stone you're rejecting right now. God has made it the cornerstone. It is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our sight. And it says that the religious leaders, they wanted to kill him all the more. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is taking his finger and he is poking it into the place of Israel's greatest need. God's people, they didn't need to be delivered from Rome. They needed to be delivered from bondage to something much deeper and something much darker, something that has enslaved us all. God's people needed to be saved from sin. They thought they were a people who followed the Lord, but every step that Jesus takes, every move he makes to come near, it is revealed over and over that their hearts, their hearts are knit to something else entirely. Jesus is taking his finger and he is pointing at that enmity that lurks in every single human heart since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of that tree so long ago. Jesus is pointing his finger at the sin that always leads to death, the sin that has left every single one of us standing under the just judgment of God that has made us such people that if God was to come near to anything that we hold precious, we would rather see God killed than that thing taken. And Jesus, Jesus says, that's what I've come to save you from. That, that's what I've come to deliver my people from, not Rome. We have to understand this. Because if you don't, if we don't see this as our greatest need, though we run the risk, not just of being disappointed with Jesus, we run the risk of one day ultimately despising Jesus, of being those who maybe bless him for a moment, but who in the end find our blessings turned to cursing. Because we thought that the thing we needed most, it was something other than the salvation that he offers. It happens all the time. I think of myself as a little kid who wanted more than anything in the world just to have some friends and to be accepted and told he was normal. And I remember going out in the woods, not just on one occasion, but multiple, and literally screaming at Jesus. Because I had prayed and prayed for friends and acceptance just to feel and be accepted as someone who was normal, as someone who fit in. Jesus, Jesus hadn't done anything like that. And I was angry. Think of C.S. Lewis, who as a little boy lying on his bed in his room, prayed to Jesus that he would save his mother from death. 
and then found himself as a little boy standing next to his brother and his father over her grave, angry at God because he had not responded to his prayers he thought that he should. I think of this crowd, this crowd that right here sings blessing to Jesus when he comes into the city, but in just a few days, in just a few days, is going to find themselves in a very different place. Some of them bewildered, some of them disillusioned, some of them crying with the religious leaders, crucify, crucify, crucify. Because they expected a king and they expected a salvation of a very different kind. And before you say, well, how do you know that that's the same crowd? How do we know that they didn't just continue praising Jesus' name? How do we know that's not other people? And I would simply respond with this. Why would you think the crowd would be any different than the disciples? The disciples, they know more than anybody. They know that Jesus has told them, I have to die. This is the way salvation will come. I'm giving my life as a ransom for many yet the disciples. When death comes near and the cross starts looming larger, they show themselves very clearly to be men who have the wrong expectations of Jesus. Because when the soldiers come through the undergrowth to arrest Jesus, and one of the disciples pulls out his sword and Jesus says, put that away, that's not what we're doing. And instead says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Literally, bring on the cross. Every single disciple flees. All of them. They run. Peter the man who, because he's Peter, is probably shouting the loudest of anybody here in Mark 11. His hosannas are probably irritating the other, 12, the other 11 disciples because he's trying to show that he loves Jesus more than anybody else. Peter denies Jesus three times and says, I do not know this man, I do not know this man, I do not know him. And Judas whose cloak may have been on the back of the very donkey that Jesus rode in on. Jesus doesn't just deny Jesus. Judas sells him, and he hands him over to death. They were looking at the right Savior, but they were looking at him for the wrong salvation. Jesus... Jesus doesn't want us to make that mistake. Jesus doesn't want us to sit there in that moment and to miss the king's come. Because here's the good news of this disorienting king. He may not be the king that we think we need. He may not be the king that we want. But he's the king we need. Because what good would it do us if Jesus gave us every single thing that we wanted? What good would it have done Israel if Jesus had swooped in on a war horse and brought Rome to their knees? What, what good would it have done me as a little boy if Jesus had just ended my loneliness and made everything normal and everything safe? What good would it have done C.S. Lewis if Jesus had spared his mother and given her a few more decades of life? What good would any of those things be? If at the end of the day, every single one of us, though we had everything that we would want in this life, if we found ourselves having passed from this life to the next and realized we were still under God's just condemnation for sin, 
Uh, What good would any of those things be if we found ourselves at the end of our lives staring into the face of a holy God and realizing that we had no excuse, that all the things in our hearts that we thought were hidden, those were laid bare and those are now exposed and we have nothing that we can say in the face of his infinite wrath. Jesus could give us all those things. He could give us extra decades of life. He could give us friends. He could conquer Rome. But Jesus, Jesus knew this. None of that meant anything if he did not deal with sin first. Now let me be clear. Jesus, he cares about all those things. He cared about me as a little kid. He cared about C.S. Lewis and he cared about the crowd. And there will be a day when he will meet all of those needs in full. But Jesus, Jesus isn't a doctor who wants to give a Band-Aid to a cancer patient. Jesus wants to give the cure. Jesus, in Mark 11, he's saying, look at me. I'm not the king you expected. I'm a king who disorients you because I come in humility, but more than that, I come to save. To come and stand in the place of a people who deserve to be crushed for sin and instead to be crushed for them. To walk into the mouth of their hate and to be swallowed by it so that in the place of man's greatest evil, we could experience God's greatest mercy. Jesus says, here's the kind of king I am. I'm the king of Zechariah 9, who comes on a donkey and who possesses salvation because by the blood that I have shed, I'm the one who sets the prisoners free. I'm the stone rejected in Psalm 118 that God has made the cornerstone of a kingdom composed of forgiven sinners. And that king, that king, he looks at each one of us and he says, the salvation you need, you find in me. You have only to cry, Hosanna, save us now. And the salvation that you need this humble servant and blessed savior, he gives it in full. And here's the beauty. This king, he's coming again. And this time he's gonna come in glory, not on a donkey, but on the clouds of heaven to a people made worthy, not by their work, but by his. And when he does, the shout on every tongue will be this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Father, we entrust this to you. We ask that you would take your word and Lord, you would press it deeply into our hearts. Give us eyes to see the king that we need who may disorient us, Lord, but who provides for us the salvation that only he could offer. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.